time of release, protests against police brutality are still happening nationwide. We donated all of our May Patreon funds to charity and encourage you to check out the Homeless Black Trans Woman Fundraiser, the Okra Project, For the Girls, and the Bail Project. These fundraisers still need your support and protests are still going on nationwide, so we need to make sure that we're continuing to help out people in our community. Now, onto the show. Content warning. This episode of Will It Homestuck contains adult language, complete spoilers for the Adventure Zone balance arc, Merle High Church's horniness, and Naruto. Listener discretion is advised. Big thanks to Danny the Spoon Lord, Fleece, Kylo Ren, Sin, John Riley, Starshine, and Sylph of Breath, our $5 and up patrons, for helping out the show. Our theme song, Sunbanger, is by at underscore tittle on Instagram. If you've been sitting on a Will at Homestuck idea, now's a good time to submit it. We have another episode without Bucky and Clever coming up next week, and then Taz Part 2 will be the following week. Thanks so much to everyone who listens, and enjoy the episode. So you're you're telling telling me Griffin Griffin McElroy McElroy didn't read Homestuck? Homestuck? Well, it's time time to to fix fix that that in Will at Homestuck. This week we're covering the uh, the Adventure the, Zone, the beloved balance arc of the Adventure Zone yeah. specifically. It's taken a hot minute for us to get through <laughs> listening to all of uh-huh. the Adventure Zone, but we got here. With this episode, we have now covered two of my five favorite pieces of media, like ever. It's, in terms of pacing, I think we're on track. We've only been going for seven months now. Yeah, it's a while. We're past the halfway point to coming up on a year, past the six-month mark, which is exciting. We're going to do, like, a Halloween episode at some point. We're thinking of doing the Magnus Archives for the Halloween yeah, episode, but I don't fun. know if we're going to be able to get through that much podcast yeah, by Halloween. Yeah, be a lot. It took us a minute to get through this. Yeah. And 69 incredible episodes. And nice. And we had both listened to it before. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't listened to the Magnus Archives, and you've listened to an amount of it. Yeah, I've listened to some... They do split it into, like, seasons, so we may cover, like, season one or whatever. I did put a spoiler warning in the front card, as usual, but for real, there are characters whose existence are major spoilers for the balance arc. So, like, I highly recommend going to listen to it. It's totally free. It's just a podcast, and it's really good and really funny. I highly, highly recommend listening to it before coming to this episode, because a lot... It has a lot of, I guess, re-listen value, but a lot of the value of your first listen listen through comes through some of the reveals and, like, how the information is doled out to the listener. So I highly recommend doing that before listening to this episode, because we're going to spoil fucking everything. And on that note, uh, let's try to do a quick plot summary. Yeah. So the Adventure Zone Balance follows the McElroy family playing a game of Dungeons and Dragons, playing the dwarf cleric Merle Highchurch, the human fighter Magnus Burnsides, and the elf wizard Taco, no last name given. I think they joke that his last name is T-A-A-C-O, yeah. his first name is T-A-A-K-O that's, early on. That's the but... fanon for sure, but yeah, um... I like to think he's a Beyonce. Played by their dad, their middlest brother, and their oldest brother, respectively. The youngest brother is the DM and yeah. plays all of the other characters. Griffin boy. Griffin boy. Baby boy Griffin. It follows their misadventures, mostly misadventures, through a series of different kind of inspired adventures through to their fantastic finale. 
It starts with a classic goblin dungeon crawl, which doesn't end up having as many goblins as it could. It has a gob- it has Clark, it has a goblinoid. It well, it's got Yemic, and it's got a couple nameless goblins in the uh, the bridge fight scene. But then it ends with somebody who's decidedly not a goblin. Yeah. Um, it has a it has a train murder mystery, like a what would be an Agatha Christie murder mm-hmm. mystery if these two if these three weren't so like tasteless. <laughs> these three boys couldn't could hold themselves back from just killing so many NPCs. A Fast and the Furious car chase battle thing with a bunch of heists and and they try to not do a murder. They aren't entirely successful. A lab investigate, like a... A space horror, like a space horror movie. Mm -hmm. Like those stuck on a ship with something chasing you through it kind of thing. Except it's not scary at all. It's like... (laughs) It should be scary, except it, it folds out more like a uh, more. I feel, it feels like a very much like a point and click adventure game to me. Actually, a little bit, yeah. How it comes across. Oh, I would love that as a fan game, especially with the Vocaloid um, yeah. music that's dropped in there. Fucking Lucas Arts. That would be. I'd play that. I'm not yeah. even a point and click girl, but I'd play that. A Groundhog Day time loop puzzle involving a lot of cool lore. A lot of neat lore. And finally, just the Dark Carnival. Just the Dark Carnival. They put the Dark Carnival in the show. It's the Dark Carnival. Then it takes a hard loop backwards to do a rerun of the century before the show because our characters <laughs> lived through that in a section that we call lightweight TTRPGs are fun, actually. I like to call it, please stop making fun of Griffin. He'd never designed a game before, and it's actually a pretty solid system. It, it, it works for what they were doing, which was telling a story. Mm-hmm. Like, they were telling it. They were trying to get through a whole bunch of story. That's why it's railroad. You yeah. shut up, Reddit. The overarching plot connecting these arcs is that there are these seven grand relics that are uber-powerful magical items that bring people into their thrall and kind of mind-control them into using them for destructive purposes, and they are hired by the Bureau of Balance to recall these relics and quote-unquote destroy them. Because for some reason, these three idiots are the only people who supposedly can resist the thrall of these uh, items. I guess guess because they're too stupid. Like, I guess it's just because they're too dumb. I mean, that's... That's the... That's not why. <laughs> that's we'll the... get into why it isn't, but yeah. that's not why. So they gather six of the seven relics uh, over the course of this whole thing, and we'll get into what those are and what they do and stuff as we go. If you haven't listened, again, by this point, you should have listened to the thing, because we're not going to stop to explain a whole lot after the summary. And it's revealed that their boss, a woman named Lucretia, hadn't been destroying them at all. She had been gathering them and absorbing their power into her staff, which is itself the seventh relic, Because she, the Trace Horny Boys, as they call themselves, and three other characters, are actually interdimensional aliens who have been outrunning a reality-consuming monster for the past century, and she had wiped the main character's memories in order to gather the relics that they made uh, in order to stop the universe-eating hunger once and for all. It's actually kind of convoluted once I start saying it out loud. Yeah, it's because you're approaching it from a bunch of different directions all at once. It's not super straightforward. Like, they escaped from their home plane, Mm -hmm. and they escaped from this monster. It chased them for centuries. Their last-ditch plot was to break up this ultra-powerful MacGuffin that they had been Mm -hmm. chasing and that had been resetting every every year-long cycle. And mm-hmm. it worked for a time until it turned out that this uber-powerful MacGuffin, even when it was broken up, could still wreak a lot of havoc in these relics. Yeah. 
so these relics are each a piece of what's called the light of creation, which is basically the tool used to create reality. And so even like small pieces of it broken off, which is what the relics are, are enough to cause entire wars and genocides and all sorts of havoc. So Lucretia decides, well, the guilt over doing this is killing my friends, so I'm going to wipe their memories and then hire them to help me gather them back up uh, because they wouldn't do it if they knew because they're set in their morals and stuff. So she basically tricks them, gathers them all up, and then they do one final big fight against the hunger, and I cry every time because it's really emotionally affecting storytelling. Guys, it's really good. It's really good. And here's where I'd like to posit my interpretation of on upon which axis the story of the Adventure Zone Balance arc is told. According to, like, every every aspect pair is an axis along which a story can be told. It can be mm-hmm. told along, like, time and space. It can be told along breath and blood. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the Adventure Zone is told along the axis of rage and hope. I think that there's a lot of both of those things in this story. I haven't classified any of our main three as rage-bound, but every single one of them is is touched by rage, I think. And if we go with, uh, Esther, uh, O Pacifica, or Pacifica O, yeah, O Pacifica, uh, her aspect on aspects, that's the interplay between unchecked destruction on the rage's end and mm-hmm. unchecked growth on hope's end, the, the scalpel that cuts the cancer out and the cancerous growth. Yeah. And I think that's kind of, uh, like, the light of creation is, it's, it's, it's neutral because it's not sentient that we... Well, it is. It is. It's, yeah. It is. But it doesn't... It's not actively good or bad. It's kind of chaotic and it just wants to be desired and mm-hmm. used and mostly desired, though. Well, that desire links it to hope. Yeah. Because it's about want and it is a tool for bringing things into existence. Like, right. that's hope. Whereas, you know? like, the... I actually have the hunger also classified as kind of a hope sort of... Because it's, it's also kind of the bad end for Hope in the sense that all of those people decided that they had exactly the, an idea of what reality was mm-hmm. and they made it that way through their faith in what was true. It reads very much as rage to me in that, and I haven't read Esther's work yet. You've linked it to me, but I haven't gotten around to it. But in Optimistic Duelist's idea of rage where... It is this rock bot like you are aware of reality because reality is rock bottom and you're at it. Where you know exactly how things work and how things work ain't great. Where if there are these polar opposites, rage and hope, hope is belief or delusion that is so strong it can affect reality. And so it is a complete disconnect from reality outside of your own head. Where rage yeah. disregards your own thoughts and is about cold hard tragic reality and john in creating the hunger was about oh man i've just done an absurdism except i didn't confront the absurd i decided to eat people over it (laughs) i decided to eat people about it instead of confronting the absurdity that is existence and so he basically tears apart reality in order to make his own which feeds into the class and aspect that I gave him, but that still reads as very rage to me because it is a response to the shittiness of reality as the hunger perceives it. I I definitely see what you're saying of 
that that being the axis of the adventure zone i think that's absolutely i mean choose joy it's like the fucking catchphrase of the show you know yeah it's, there it is it's you are choosing to believe in a thing like you're just deciding this is what i'm gonna work towards this is what i'm gonna try to make a reality it's very hope is there anything else you want to cover in the story section uh taco has is where the final big major spoiler because seriously if you haven't listened already at this point i've done what i can uh, Taco has a secret twin sister, Loop, who is a canon-confirmed trans woman, and she's the coolest fucking person in the show. She rocks. I love her. I'm excited to do her classic because I have yeah. an interesting one for her. Uh, I think that's that's about it. There's a lot of details of, like, we're not telling you all the jokes that are in the show. There's a lot like just- of... It's funny where mm-hmm. we can't we would we would sit here and recap it, but the thing is, a lot of nice people on YouTube make a lot of money out of repackaging and mm-hmm. reworking the the Adventure Zone and clips and stuff. Yeah, so like, go listen to it. It's funny. It'll make you cry. It has gays and transes and non non burn mimnies. Now, as a disclaimer, this show is run by three. Well, four cishet men mm-hmm. who they are very well intentioned. They mm-hmm. are very. They have done their research. They have they have talked to their audience about what their audience wants, mm-hmm. and they are they are pretty pretty ding dang cool. They do a really good job of bringing representation into their media, and outside of the things they make, they donate a lot of their the income they make to a lot of good causes and like they do good stuff but they aren't trans folks or people of color making media yeah when i was listening to them this week last week they were or the the last week or two they were donating funds to the nina pop and uh tony mcdade mental health funds Mm -hmm. and this week they were donating their their proceeds from the adventure zone to i think like a stonewall uh, charity so yeah. they're they're putting their money where their mouth is i'll give yeah. them that but i i would have felt remiss if i didn't put a disclaimer mm-hmm. that as much as this white dude's making the show as much as it does have yeah. some cool it has some cool representation that most of white dudes don't think to conclude so thanks yeah. for that i guess and well done representation too yeah all right class spectating. let's start with the main trio which of yeah. the main trio do you want to begin with uh let's start with magnus because okay. he's our closest to like a classic fantasy hero he's uh sword and sandals he's got a big axe he's a human fighter he's his his philosophy as he sums it up Mm -hmm. at one point is to do good recklessly yeah which write that on my fucking gravestone yeah oh my god magnus rushes in he is i'm gonna say this about every character we talk about he's the best character in the show (laughs) uh the catchphrase magnus rushes in he's he's this bullheaded bareheaded bareheaded thank you fucking idiot of a man who loves people so much he's hey he's he's what everyone's talking about when they talk about himbos yeah he's he's literally he is the archetypal himbo he's big and buff and dumb and nice and i would die for him he does drink his respect women juice he drinks it more over the course of the show he particularly Mm -hmm. drinks respect his wife juice he is a wife guy himbo specifically he's very much a wife guy himbo in what i will say is probably the best handled dead wife subplot probably ever because she shows up and gets speaking lines and she's still a character and i don't know it's definitely not for everybody and if you're not into that kind of thing i get it but at the same time there's there's something about the tone of how that subplot is delivered that i don't know 
I like it. It's compelling, and I'm into it. He does good things, but mostly he does good things for glory and because he doesn't want to be weak to some extent. Mm-hmm. He 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 does nice things for people. Like it's it's and, especially nice it's especially mm-hmm. good if the things that he do happen to benefit people, but it's not always because it's for people. Sometimes yeah. it's because he wants to do something, anything. Mm-hmm. He yeah. There's a lot to be read into his his need to be doing something about a problem even if that's making the problem worse. And it kind of leads me to wonder what would have happened to him if he hadn't uh, had his happy ending shattered because he would have been stuck in a town as a blacksmith, antsy mm-hmm. and wanting to do things. But he he had he had an adventure that ended with a happy ending that mm-hmm. he just went on even after, like that was post-Mind Wipes, like he had a... And it was it was taken away from him, and then he had to go on and like become an adventurer. And that now that's due to like some retconning stuff that they had to pull in order mm-hmm. to like get Magnus to where he was at the start of the show. Yeah, the but canon, <laughs> the canon of the show is loose. The canon is loose, loosely ad libbed and put on a nice big pile that mm-hmm. we get to it's fl- it's, you know flop yeah. onto like a bunch of nice autumn leaves. Mm-hmm. He's the most connected to what the player character set out. For that character from the beginning because he kept around the most original characterization i mean he's the most consistent because he's just a fucking self-insert for travis mcelroy yeah like they like i think of magnus burnsides and it's just me photoshopping abs onto a picture of <laughs> travis it's they you are put the Travis's same person. head mm-hmm. on Dwayne the Rock Johnson's body and hand him an axe yeah. that can cut down one tree in a in one swing per day. Yeah, I fucking like <laughs> Griffin never lets him use it. <laughs> like I think he uses that functionality once it's over the course of the show. Uh huh. So what? Do, which one of us do, do you want to you go, go first? first? Because Magnus is one of the couple of characters that I'm still waffling on. Like I'm still not quite sure about. I'm also I'm tentative on his class, but I think he's definitely a blood player, and I have him as an heir of blood. He has the most connection to to a traditional life. He's got his rustic hospitality. Mm-hmm. He's he's the most friendship oriented out of the three of them. He's yeah. the first to say like wait. Was he the first to say, so how's everybody doing on the adventure? That was Taco. That was Taco. But he's definitely the most relationship-oriented. Yeah. Like, a lot of his history is defined by the gaining and loss of close, intimate relationship that I'm so fucking excited to get into in shipping. I have a blast shipping with this show. Blood player. I think I can complete that for you because I had a class but not an aspect. Okay. I think he's a knight of blood. Yeah, I, I didn't want to give him, I didn't want to diagnose him with car cap, but the problem is he is so firmly in the middle of all these different archetypes that like, we have that section where we go and we diagnose the first mm-hmm. cat. And the thing is that we run into a lot of car cats as well. There are, there are, there are a lot mm-hmm. of knights of blood. I have always thought car cat is, like compared to the rest of the trolls, car cat is very much, he resembles other characters in other media more than any of the other trolls do. He's easy to flesh out with mm-hmm. air quotes because there's so much peripheral characterization that happens to characters like Carcat that we can yeah. kind of fill them in. And then the direction that you fill that in kind of takes the it defines the direction of your fan in Carcat. Mm-hmm. But the like there's a lot of different rom com and hero pro tags that share a lot of stuff with Carcat that make it easy I to mean, fill them in. My first connection that i make to him and this is i admit how fucking hilarious this is but the first connection i make to Karkat outside of homestuck to other characters is sasuke 
it's because so. of the because of the the super bare bones anger repression and tsundere because those are the baselines of characters like Karkat. I, I guess somebody did come to Magnus's hometown and kill his entire town and, and family and destroy it mm -hmm. and then he ran away and had to become an adventurer. So yeah. yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I mean like <laughs> I guess so. Sasuke was the beginning of an archetype and there are people who've written essays about it. Does has Travis McElroy watch Naruto? <laughs> Absolutely! Are you kidding? <laughs> of course he has. I have Magnus as a prospect dreamer. I think that is correct. Because he's just, he's up and at him, you know? I agree with that a lot. He's very proactive. All right, let's do our next one. Okay. Um, Merle. Merle. So I, this was coincidental, but I, I think it really works. I'll go first for Merle because you highlighted the axis of hope and rage here. I think Merle is a seer of hope. Intriguing. I think you could definitely argue rage. <laughs> you could definitely argue that Merle is like, a prince of rage or something like that. But because, and they have talked about this, uh, the boys have talked about this on the, the Adventure Zone Zone before, where the thing they focused on with Merle when it came to get story heavy and character heavy was his crisis of faith and his relationship with Pan and his religion. And so I basically dove in and looked at, okay, what is his relationship with his faith? And I think that a lot of his relationship with faith is something that I because this is like my fourth or fifth listen through of the show, because I fucking love it. And I, I relate to Merle more and more <laughs> every time I listen through. And a lot of it is because he he had this religious framing that he had, right? Um, that he was raised in, which I don't really have in common with him, but his backstory. And at some point, for a lot of reasons, he basically said, okay, this isn't something that like sparks any joy. Well, well, not like it doesn't fill me with the energy of zealous. It doesn't make me zealous, right? It doesn't yeah. fill me with the energy to go preach it out and that kind of thing. But I do need it. So I'm going to choose to follow it. I am going to make the decision to put effort into this way of life and see if I can wring any meaning out of it. Like I'm fucking squeezing water out of a rock, right? And he does. And so I see that I draw a connection to Rose and her her determination to be an agent, to have agency. And she decides, when she makes a decision, she fucking decides and she dedicates herself to it. And so that kind of brings me to think of him as a seer. I think that was all pretty spot on. I had that he had that like his character is based around like faith and belief, experience, wisdom, healing, also horniness. Mm -hmm. I, I definitely juggled him as a life player. I mean, it's just like it, the problem is that like so much of his character is that he's horny. Not even that he's horny so much as just he's a, he's a very sexual person. Yeah, because I don't have I don't see him as having a lot of like. He's not Randy. He just talks about sex a lot. He thinks the most of other people... Yeah, he thinks the most of other people out of the, the Trace Horny Boys, but he's <laughs> also self-centered. They're all self-centered. He, yeah. he wants to go with the flow, and he... I think I had him as, like, a passive class, for sure, because I thought that made the most sense. I <laughs> also have him as a prospect dreamer. I had him as Durst. I think he's... <laughs> I think he's very much got that, like... 
oh, you know, everything's fine. Like, it's all it's all good. It's all fine. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to think about it. It's fine. Kind of like prospect. That's fair. Feeling to him. I can definitely see it. I put him Durst because he's very much a pessimist. You I know? think you could be a prospect dreamer and be a pessimist. I mean, like, Terezi, Vriska, Karkat, yeah. Gamzee, and Tavros, Solix are all... Okay. Prospect Dreamers. I, I can see him as a prospect. I'll buy that. Okay. T-A-A-K-O Taco. Oh, the boy. The boy. So him and his sister are the ones that I actually wrote a bunch of notes for before I lost momentum. You should start, because I have notes for each and every arc of his, so... Okay. Taku cares about himself, his well-being, uh, and having attention on him. He he cares about Loop, but, like, there's a lot, there's at least one moment, and I think in particular it's the moment where she disagrees with him, where he just kind of expects her to go along with him because he thinks of them kind of as a unit. And I don't think that, like, I think he cares about his sister, but I think he's definitely very self-centered. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Other, he has that quote where he says other people are dust to him in a certain extent after living through a century and like i think it's it's important to note that like that's not how everyone comes out of that situation mm-hmm. a bunch of the the other ipre members don't come out of that thinking that that most sentient beings that they run into are akin to dust but it's it's all it's all about taco it's all mm-hmm. about taco he needs eyes on him yeah he, he needs credit given to him yeah, he chooses the meaning. I he he chooses the meaning, and the meaning is him and is himself. Uh, I think he's a Durst dreamer. I don't think that there's another option in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. I think he's a heart player. Ooh. I think that sense of self and self-centeredness and, like, that everything's filtered through the taco lens, I think that makes him some kind of, like, heir of heart. I think he, I, I think, I have bard of heart or heir of heart. I think one of the two. Like, the bard kind of, like, his sense of self is kind of, like, no, maybe, ro- sorry, roger bard. Ro- roger bard. His sense of self is kind of, like, both taken away or destroyed in part due to, like, actions outside of him and actions other people take. For the most part, he kind of turns in and doubles down when stuff goes wrong. And if it weren't for people reaching in and out to him, he would turn in and double down. And that's kind of why I think the Bard of Heart made the most sense. Hmm. A Durst Dreamer Bard of Heart. I think he's... I don't know. I, I He's certainly acting in his own self-interest, and I guess that would make him active and would make him a, a prince. So I, I guess I could be diagnosing <laughs> with true Dirk. I don't know. I have him as a passive class. He, he hates philosophy too much to be Dirk. Well, that's the, the philosophy isn't a part of the hardiness. It's a part of the Dirkiness. But that's and, what I mean. Like, he can be yeah. a prince of heart, but he's not... I don't think he's true Dirk because he's, he's not quoting Nietzsche. I mean, he's got Dirk's class back to Dreaming Moon is what I meant um, by that. Not that he was actually literally Dirk. Much I... in the same way the people that we diagnose as actually literally Vriska don't all have to be LARPers. Yeah. Okay. I can definitely see Heart Player. Um, so I'm not going to go through all my notes because it's like half a page. I have him as role-playing a thief of life. Uh, I think it's absolutely accurate to say that Taco is an, is an active player. He does yeah. stuff for Taco and for the people Taco cares about, and he does it for the people Taco cares about so that they will continue to be in Taco's life. Like, he does stuff for himself. He is literally a thief. He steals shit all the time. I think a lot of where the nuance of Taco comes in is the capitalism. A lot of the way he puts himself above other people and tries to distance himself is by being their boss. And by extracting 
riches from them and money and Which power. Is a lot of life coding. He's yeah, he he wants to be in a position of power of social power specifically where he's the star. He like and he wants to use that as a way to distance himself and become life player, right? In that sense of having social power. So I think he is a thief, but he's role playing the aspect of life. Uh, I think he's a thief of light. You just think he's full of Riska. Interesting. I do. Uh, I do think he's a Durst dreamer. You and I agree on that one. I think he's a thief of light because there's this duality of Taco that I see. Where there's the Taco that he puts forth uh, that is Taco from TV. Who is the entrepreneur who is cooler than you, who will steal your silverware, who will half-heartedly trick you into making you think that he's a good person, even though he knows you don't believe him. All that shit, right? And then there is Taco, I need to let down my disguised self for my boyfriend so that I'm not dishonest with him. And see, a lot of that still reads as very hearty because uh, light is centered around like answers and meaning and, and why are we going through the plot that we're going through? What does mm-hmm. the plot mean? Taco isn't very much involved with that. Taco is involved with his sense of self mm-hmm. and with... I don't want to say what he means, but like he cares about what stuff means to him and he cares mm-hmm. about where he is in the center of everything. And he's got, he disguises himself and he hides bits of himself and he steals bits of himself away from people or shows people little bits of himself. But it's not really about knowledge or tactical advantage all the time for him. It's mostly about what's the best way to present himself. I focused on light as fortune and as narrative focus. Taco's life is dope and Taco does dope shit. Point the camera at Taco. Show Taco on screen. Don't empathize with Taco. Don't look at what's in his heart. Don't dive deep into his suffering and his struggles, but look at him. That's where the role-playing of life comes in, because fortune, in the light coding, he role-plays that into wealth. He, He is seeking fortune and luck and prosperity for himself, but he thinks he's going to get it through social power and through literal physical wealth. I would still, I could still tie that back to heart by saying that he's defining himself around his status. It's not just that he's acquiring that. It's mm-hmm. that he is that. It's that that is him and that is all that defines Taco is his persona that he has going on. And there's, I don't know, there's something else you said that, that kind of linked in there. But like basically he's... Oh, he's like a thief because he's kind of taking away other people's perception of himself as mm-hmm. well. Like he, he's he's stealing that perception of himself from people, and he gets to have it for him mm-hmm. as power. Yeah, to benefit he, himself. He, he's Bugs Bunny. He's yeah. the dumb idiot wizard for as long as it takes for people to underestimate him, and then he pulls out some wild fuck off magic that we've never seen before. Okay, all right. I think Thief of Heart would work. Um, I still think he's role playing a life player. I still, I also agree that he's role playing a life player. I like that. Um, I th- I think that lines up. Do we want to go to uh, Lucretia or Loop next? Let's do Loop. Okay, I guess I'll go first. She knows how to navigate the plot to get people to where they need to go in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. Like we we most of what we see her doing is taking some very decisive actions. Mm-hmm. She is the heart at a moment of need in during the stolen century. She gets a lot of the bombastic and attention grabbing mm-hmm. points on screen. She's very she's got a lot of loneliness. Like she her story is kind of is about being separated from Taco mm-hmm. both in memory and in actuality. Yeah, it is about I mean it's about 
going from subject to object and then wrenching the title of subject back from whoever stole it from her. Yeah. Yeah. She's she's present in the plot from the beginning, as it turns out. She refuses to let life be sacrificed for the possibility of future life later. This kind of leads her to, to, to have theming around like life as planned, like a planned beginning to life. She's got a lot of rebirth culminating in being very powerful going on for her Mm -hmm. but like becoming a lich breaking out of the umber staff and becoming super duper powerful a lot of transformation her amount of agency varies wildly yeah from moment to moment in the plot i have her as an heir of space we came to different conclusions from a very similar place because I, I was also thinking, like, I think of her arc of being, if the seven birds, if the IPRE are the Justice League, she is Superman. She is the big guns. She is by far the most powerful person there. She is, like, a moral center for people. She Like, she is the center yeah, of the team. She's the big red boy scout. Mm-hmm. That's what Girl Scout as uh, well. Like, And then she goes from that to non-existent. To, for all intents and purposes, gone from the universe that the story takes place in but then she bides her time and she oh no i'm seeing the space now mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. okay i was thinking of it very much in terms of agency and movement through the world and the plot and i had her as a rogue of breath because her agency and her plot power is stolen from her but then she steals it back for the sake of everybody around her. That could, was basically where I went. I could also see Rogue of Space, honestly. Mm-hmm. I, I picked Air because of like the, the transformation and inheritance and becoming mm-hmm. that, that has a lot. Yeah. Uh, you, uh, particularly, like she's trans, she, she's reborn as a lich, she goes... This, this one's a bit more of a stretch, but like she goes to a DMV, which is kind of a place of... like. It's a threshold in a lot of ways, but it's also like a trial and something a lot that a lot of people hate, and she destroys it. Destroys it. it. Which I, I think Air could definitely work for her in terms of like power because Airs are very powerful. They, they come the closest of the non-master classes to commanding their aspect, and she very much is in command of her own power. And she also she could have succumbed to loneliness and like mm-hmm. sacrifice for plot relevance but she didn't become that she didn't succumb mm-hmm. to and she didn't meet an heir's bad ends she could have also succumbed to it in becoming a source of power for taco becoming an object for his own agency i can definitely see any of the two classes and any of the two aspects we've given for her like i very much engage with loop on the idea of her loss and regaining of agency Specifically as it maps onto a trans narrative, where... And note that one of the cross-sections that we gave here, if we have air, space, rogue, and breath, mm-hmm. is air of breath. We could just straight-up diagnose her with, with, with June. June. Yeah. Because, um, like, she has already transitioned by the time we meet her. Right. Um, we never see a pre-transition loop or a pre-coming-out loop. She is this fully realized person... Right up until the moment circumstances align to steal all of her power and all of her ability to choose away from her. And I think the, like, the 
breath versus space part of it is going to tie into whether you think her story is more about what the story means or how the story works. And given that she gives that big speech during right at the final, final battle of the storm of the century, I think, I still think that piece of evidence could be used either way, but I think it leans more into meaning and therefore more into breath because she's the one who inspires everybody mm -hmm. at the end. She, her emotional core is repeatedly what inspires people to do the right thing. Yeah, she is an inspiration for other people. Ooh, what if she were a maid or a sylph of space? Or of breath, I mean. A maid or a sylph. Yeah, maybe, probably a sylph in terms of inspiring agency in others and being a source of it i think almost. she's still an active class i think she's okay. still she's still very much acts in her own self-interest a lot of the mm -hmm. time like she that's something that's that she and taught like it does happen more in the beginning, kind of more when, I guess you could say she's acting more like Taka when she still is like, well, I want money back from Greg Grimaldis and I want yeah. to blow up a DMV. But, uh, although that's a little bit further on, she she wants to blow stuff up really bad. I mean, she is Taka's connection to other people. Yeah. One of the reasons he retreats and becomes so self-insular after she's gone and after he gets the memory wipe is because she's not there to pull him towards other people. I have no doubt that she was like, hey, let's apply for this uh, gig at the IPRE. You and I are both fucking great at magic. We're great at this. Let's put in the work. And he's like, ah, I, you know I don't work well with teams. And she's like, yeah, you lead them. Let's go. Like, <laughs> I, I want to go for Rogue of Breath and for Prospect. Yeah, okay. I had her as Durst, but I can see why you said Prospect based on what you just said there. Because yeah. for all of her her snarkiness and what she has in common with Taco, she's a ray of fucking sunshine. Yeah. Like, she's delightful. She is happy and smart. Like, she's friendly with fucking everybody. Like... I don't know. I could write an essay on her and Taco and the what they have in common and how they juxtapose yeah, each other. Yeah, we have at least four more characters, though. Yeah. Lucretia. Lucretia. You go first. I had Lucretia as, and this is, this is iffy, as a prince of mind role-playing a thief of mind. Interesting. Because she doesn't listen to people. Like, her arc is coming into her own as somebody who stops fucking taking orders. And that is good, and that is very bad. It does good things for her, and it does bad things for her and those around her. And I think Prince of Mind specifically rather than Thief because, I mean, she does steal thoughts and memories and stuff from people. But, but a lot of her actions are final and destructive mm -hmm. and powerful. Yeah, she, I mean, the Voidfish, it's stated multiple times that the Voidfish doesn't hide information, it destroys it. You can gain access to some version of it again, but it's gone from the minds of everyone who's not inoculated. And the Voidfish has an extension of her power, which I could see as, like, Witch of Mind, maybe, or Air, with the Voidfish as a familiar. And I have her as a Prospect Dreamer. I also have her as a Prospect Dreamer. I think she's an active player. She's literally a chronicler. Mm -hmm. She's harmed when she acts passively. And, like, her, her arc is about striving to act more actively. Mm -hmm. to, to act in her own self-interest. And it only blows up in her face when she tries to make her actions serve other people. Her story is also about moving more into the spotlight, I guess, in that regard. Where she goes from, like, being completely on the edges being a chronicler of other people's stories to trying to take the reins of the story 
I have her as a maid of light. Hmm. And I'm more sold on light than I am on maid, and I, I like prince. I could I could be sold on prince of light, and I think a destruction class, particularly a destruction of knowledge, would make sense. But I think she's too themed around spotlight, attention, mm-hmm. chronicling knowledge, history. journal keeping, history, strategy, knowledge, foresight. Um, she, like, she tries, she tries to be, I don't know, either, she tries to be a mage, I think. Mm-hmm. I think she tries to be or either a mage or a seer, like, she tries to go all in on that knowledge class, and especially to be passive, but she can't. I think she definitely tries to be a seer. Yeah. Could I convince you for Witch of Light? Yeah. Because, I, I mean, the Void Fish is connected to her as, like, an extension of her will and her power. She changes knowledge for her own sake. And she changes the focus of the narrative. Like, if we take it in chronological order of, like, how it... the order of events in-universe, whole stolen century is going this one way, hopping world to world, planar system to planar system, and then when she finally takes control, it veers off to the left, and suddenly it's a small-scale adventure story about, like, reclaiming these objects of power like it turns into a different kind of story when she decides to act in her own self-interest and she changes the trajectory of the story using her familiar Mm -hmm. yeah i like that okay cool Davenport. Davenport. He is. I think he's a passive player. I think he mm-hmm. acts in the in the self in the interest of other people. The best spaceship pilot to ever live. He asks at the trial, "Don't we have the right to a little wrath? Haven't we earned a little wrath? Haven't I we fucking wrath. love that line." He's focused on home and his identity, which is stolen from him, and his identity is centered around the home that he never gets to return to. Mm-hmm. When he thinks of of like his favorite place out of all the places to travel, he thinks of the place that he left, the place where he grew up, the place that he cannot return to. I have him as a rogue of heart. Because his sense of his identity is stolen from him. I have him as a Durst Dreamer. I just put him as an Okay. I also think he's a Durst Dreamer. Yeah. I focused on his absence from focus. I thought maybe Doom at first, but I straight up think he's a Sylph of Void. I think that he helps others. I mean, he is a background butler character. He is outside of the spotlight, and he helps the main characters from that position of darkness of lack of focus. This is where he becomes a lot like a lot of other Homestuck characters where that's kind of all there is textually for Davenport. Like we don't get a whole lot from him. And so it's up to us to figure out and kind of make it up and take what little we have and build on it. I don't know, I think taking his lack of spotlight and turning it into something meaningful for him is is the direction I went with it. Yeah, I like that. Cool, Barreled? Barrels. Do you want to go? Yeah, uh, and this was a little iffy because I thought blood, I thought heart, I thought breath. That like he would fit in a lot of stuff, just like he could be a lot of different D and D classes. But I settled eventually on Mage of Space. I went to Space because of its associations with science, because he's the chief science officer, and Mage because he's a very smart person. He has a lot of plot knowledge. He knows a lot of what's happening behind the scenes in terms of plot mechanics, but he doesn't share a whole lot of it. And so that knowledge. And that lack of sharing it, major space. And Durst 
streamer. I also have him as Durst. I also have him as a mage. I thought he was a mind player. If mind means that the bigger picture is the meaning, mm -hmm. then he's focused on the goal, which is the ongoing mission of the IPRE, basically. Mm -hmm. That is kind of all that matters to him. And like, and then it's he's focused on loop, and that is all that matters to him. Yeah. And that's, what, that's the picture that, that's the meaning that, he, that he's found that he's going to focus on. He doesn't care much about himself. He's willing to sacrifice his body and his mind over and over again yeah. for it. He'll play whatever role he needs to play. Very Terezi. It's not as much about identity or persona. He will be whoever he needs to be to get the job done. I can see Mage of Mind. Yeah, that's what I had. Oh, you did. Okay, yeah. I couldn't remember. Durst Mage Mind. Yeah, that makes sense. And then I have like the Hunger slash John Hunger. I had John and Angus as my last two. Yeah, okay. I think Angus is a life player interesting we know he's born well off he's already well off mm -hmm. he's like uh he's associated with the detectives and he's kind of like angus is a boy who has a lot of privilege in order to move in the world as a young boy who is not dude you're telling me that this kid isn't like 10 seconds from my father will hear about this anyone who like the reason that he that or his grandfather i guess he's so self-assured in the fact that he is the world's greatest boy detective <laughs> There's something, no child is that assured with, he, he's giving me, he gives me big like Artemis Fowl vibes. He, no child is that assured without coming, without knowing that nothing's going to happen to them. He's a very nice, nicely dressed little lad. He's a fancy lad. He has nice clothes. <laughs> he's a little rich boy and he's a life player. I think he's a mage of life specifically. I can definitely see it. I have him as a page of breath. Page, I, big, page, <laughs> big page. Oh, no, right. no doubt he's a page. Yeah, page, I could also, you could, you could sell me on page of life. I think page of breath, because he's a little protagonist boy. He just slots himself right in there <laughs> as boy wonder Angus MacDonald, greatest detective in the world. You could convince me of light for him, where he just keeps popping up. Yeah, or blood. There's blood. that meme of like blood players just show up. <laughs> <laughs> I I could see late because of his his knowledge and tactics mm -hmm. and like knowledge supplying. He's very tactical. He's a yeah a passive light player. There's a lot of light players. He could be role playing a light player. Yeah. He wants to be a life player for sure. For sure. For sure. I think you convinced me like page of life. He's probably role playing a breath player because he. I mean he's literally emulating the protagonist of a novel he likes. He is role-playing the air role. If air of breath is the perfect protagonist role, yeah. like he is emulating protagonist, so I think he could role-play air of breath, but he's a page of life. Yeah, okay. Uh, finally, John Hunger. Prince of Hope. Thief of Rage. Intriguing. Um, Same outcome-ish, different I, classes. I had him, I think, as a thief of base before you propose the axis of hope and rage but then i realized like if he is the opposite to merle if they are foils for each other yeah then it makes sense for him to be rage and i saw the arc of the world merle like his whole fucking speech like i think he has a lot of hopiness in him and in the way he started out mm -hmm. in the sense that like his his the way that he became the hunger was very mm -hmm. hopey he was very he he didn't he did delude people into becoming mm -hmm. the hunger basically into believing that the way he and the, you know what now that I'm saying that that is ragey like the the way that he thought was the only way it could be and yeah. it was diminishing people's ability to think for themselves and to mm -hmm. see any other option that is rather ragey um, when I 
I gave him Thief. I was also going Thief, Rogue, and Prince Bard are the four classes that invert the aspect that they're assigned to in some right. way. That's part of why I assign people rogues sometimes, is where I see them subverting the imagery of a specific aspect without going all the way to its opposite. And so I think he's a thief of rage because he's taking reality. I mean, number one, he's stealing reality by absorbing planes and erasing the physical reality that exists within them. And two, he's using his lack of ability to confront the absurd to delude people for his own sake. So he's using some hope imagery by thief class is subverting rage in that way to emulate hope. The light of creation has the more explicit mm -hmm. hope coding. Yeah. It's a ball of light. It is a ball of, like, swirling light that, like, yeah, you could say it's literally light, but it has a lot more of, like, the, like, Jake's hope ball. Mm -hmm. The the hope symbol is... Of creation and of... Tendrils of light. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Okay. Any other characters we want to, like, lightning rounds? Killian is a Durst Dreamer and a Doom Player. Carrie is... A thief. No, is a rogue. Is uh, a... Obviously. Uh, is a breath player... And a prospect dreamer. Rufio. Carrie is literally just Rufio. You just gave her Rufio. Oh, she's literally a rogue D&D &D class. Yeah. That's right. Yep. <laughs> I didn't think that. Johan is also a void. Yes. I think he's a bard of void. He grows in relevancy, and that relevancy, like, people knowing about him is part of what helps them defeat the hunger with the you're gonna fight, you're gonna win. Yeah, but he has to die to get there mm -hmm. first. So it's stolen from him. Yeah, tricking. Ultimate Avi. Definite Durst player. Clint McElroy, the embezzling janitor. Definitely a hope player. Um, <laughs> this is a deep cut. <laughs> I, I went like, I need to do one more and I need it to be the weirdest character nobody gives a shit about. I was gonna try to do upsee your lifting friends. <laughs> Who is definitely uh, a rage player. Definitely. Knight, and what's the, what's the active of knight again? Page. Page. Page of rage. We keep, <laughs> now Any we've given. Annoyingly upbeat characters who piss off the audience are pages of rage. It's an archetype. Yeah. Mascots are pages of rage. Yeah. If you are front and center on the advertising material, you're a page of rage. <laughs> you're, that's, that's what they're shaped like, Porky Pig. We gotta make a big shipping chart. <laughs> so let's do, let's start with Magnus and Taco. Because I know a lot of people ship those two. Magnus and Taco? Yeah. I, I, just, I don't, I don't see it. Trace Horty Boards has the opportunity for like multiple gay ships mm -hmm. in the sense that we have multiple male characters that we spend a lot of time with. But like there's nothing in the way that any of them interact that leads me to want to ship any of the main three together. I see Magnus and Merle like I'm not compelled innately by their dynamic to be like, ooh, these two should kiss. But I see like shipping art of those two sometimes. Like I'll just come across it and I'm like, fuck yeah, this is great. It's a little bit like John Dave. I'm not super into it on my own, but then people make really, really good art, and I'm like, that's, you know what? Fuck yeah. That's like, great. Yeah, all right. Yeah, okay. I read this fan fiction. I, you got me. My ships are like Taco and Clark, obviously. Yeah. Like, I think that's... Now, there's some fuckery with Taco does a spell that's, like, universally agreed outside of haha <laughs> funny time TTRPGs that you, that, like, uh -huh. you've revoked somebody's consent, so there's some fucky shit around that. Well, I mean, a little. That's mostly in the balance continuity specifically. Because Charm Person, like, 
It's not that strong of a spell. You just make someone less inclined to hate you is basically all the spell actually does. Yeah. That, that's my it, D&D nerd. It does happen to, like, stick permanently in Clark's yeah. case because of brain modifications that were made to him. Mm -hmm. So that's 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 just there, and I kind of like it, though. Um, it's definitely interesting. Like, it's not, it's not boring. It's not boring. It's interesting. I like it. Merle Diamond's Lucretia. Uh, uh mm. Yes, but I have some more compelling diamond pairings for Lucretia. Yeah, I think um, that like I think that like they might they might try it, but like it's ultimately not. I think Merle Merle and Lucretia might be ashen with somebody else. Actually, Merle is built from the ground up to be an auspicious. <laughs> like that is what he is oh, for. Oh, obviously, by the end of Balance, Merle is the middle leaf for Lucretia and Taco. Ooh, yes, yes, that's perfect. Actually. That's, yes. I think that's the first Ashen group that I've ever been into. That's really well, it's good. because there's really juicy drama between Lucretia and Taco because yeah. they both are completely justified. Mm-hmm. And Merle is, like, one of the only people who, like, could even remotely wade into that shit. Loop is too biased and too much in the middle of that. Magnus is too dumb. I think... I think Davenport um, is too wronged by Lucretia to be able to like take a neutral stance in that. I think Merle's the only person is, who can do it. This is showing my hand for my Lucretia pairings a little bit, but I think it would be a fucking Sophie's choice for Loop to have to ostracize that. I do not think she could. Like, there's it, it no way that comes out good for her. She couldn't do it. It wouldn't work. No. Um, Loop and Taco might have used to have had a boy relations. I mm -hmm. don't think they do anymore. I mean, that's... It's definitely one of those areas where boy relations has a lot of bleed over with, like, close friendship. Yeah. Right? And so, like, yes, I can definitely see it. I'd read 10,000 words about that for sure. <laughs> but at the same time, like, I have platonic friendships that look like that. Yeah. You know? You're just... You fucking vibe with somebody. You, like, you're just on the same wavelength with somebody. I, I don't know. I project a lot onto their friendship. <laughs> Another popular ship I've seen is Merle and Davenport. Yeah, Merle has two people that he mostly gets paired up with. I can see Flush Merle, or uh, Davin Merle? Davin Church? Davin Church is pretty good. Yeah. It's, I think it's a little lazy, I think it's like, oh, those two small old men get together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I like to think that they, I don't think Davenport is Taco's type. And therefore, the only other person who feels as alienated from any sense of home as much as Davenport does is Merle. You know? Yeah. Because, like, Magnus has a whole family he's found... Lucretia's part of that. Magnus wasn't really old enough when he left to feel an, an attachment to mm -hmm. his home. Or, like, losing Raven's Roost. Like, that's a loss, but he recovered from that sense of alienation through the B.O.B. and the Trace Horny Boys and, like, reconnecting with people and forming a new family. Whereas Taco, Merle, and Davenport, they don't form close, close relationships like that. And so I think there's definitely a lot of similarities that Davenport and Merle have in that way that I can see them bonding over that and being pale or flush. Um, yeah, I'd actually be more inclined to agree with pale Davenchurch mm -hmm. than I would be to agree with flush. I was saving Merle's pale quadrant for John because I think they vacillate pitch pale. 
I think yes, but I don't think that there's like a sustainable relationship there. No, they they definitely ended off. Well, actually, no, they go pale to pitch for a long time and then pale right at the end. Yeah. Because John's last moments, they like bond yeah. again and they're they're on good terms. Very good romance, it's actually. A, uh, yeah, like. I'm pretty sure that yeah. is how we are meant to read that. More old men gay romances. Yeah. More fucking old into men it. gay romances. Magnus, Hart, Julia, obviously. Magnus chooses to not get in a relationship with anybody ever mm-hmm. again after that. Like, that's... Yeah, I think Magnus's last relationship is... He is all four quadrants for Julia, yeah. right? And after she dies, he doesn't have that with anybody else. Um, I'm about to commit gay sin and... Uh, be very invested in a man-woman ship, but pale Magnus Lucretia is everything to me. I would die for them. Yeah, I do like that shit. I was on the pale loop Lucretia train because, like, I think Loop is the only person who would forgive Lucretia quickly. She is. Yeah. Like, she shows up and she's like, yeah. hey, Lucretia, it's all good. Yeah. Like, we're going to talk about it, but, like, just I, ahead of time, we're good. Uh, part of that definitely has to do with, like, her absence from the stage, I think. But I, that's, that's, but, yeah, like, Pale Magnus Lucretia mm-hmm. is kind of, like, the, the, yeah. Because um, they're, I mean, the, the symbol, the object that symbolizes their connection is the void fish. Yeah. Yes. You yeah. know, like, they both have that connection to Fisher, and they, I honestly think, and this is a lot of my headcanons for Magnus, they bond over being wallflowers. I think early on, before he kind of comes into himself and gains actual confidence, the bravado Magnus puts on is a show. I think he's very nervous and shy, and I think that Lucretia, before they forget, before she, like, you know, does her whole thing, um, during the Stolen Century, she's the only one who knows that about him. And they bond over that, and they get really, really close, I think. Yeah, there's there's a lot of build-up to their relationship, and I, I've seen some people shipping them flush, and I don't think that that's... That doesn't really jive with me. I don't think that Lucretia I, would... No. no, I think Lucretia would mostly be flush for women. Yeah. I think that's... So that's... You presumably yeah. have flushed Lucretia, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, um, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good. Lesbians. Lebs babs, yeah. Yeah. Now, Taco and Kravitz is canon. It's all well and good. Mm-hmm. It is pitch, though. Like, it's they're, not flushed. They're, they're pitch flush. They're, they've got Dave Cat shit going on. for the, mm-hmm. They've got major Dave Cat shit going on. Or at least, at least the, the way Dave Cat was interpreted, I'm going to say, like, in and around, like, Act 6, mm-hmm. when they were Pre-epilogues. in Meteor. Yeah. Like, when... When confirmation was a possibility. Yeah, yeah, and it was like, they had that very contentious relationship. Yeah. Like, yeah, you yeah. knew it was going somewhere, but they both needed to fucking get over themselves. Yeah. yeah. I think, yeah, I think, I think vacillating and, like, healthily vacillating back and forth. Yeah. I mostly see it as a flush relationship with a healthy dose of pitch dynamic to spice things up. Vacillating in the sense of, like, they definitely go pitch sometimes, but, like... They're in a loving relationship. They are positive for each other. They just rib on each other, and they challenge each other. Now, can I hit you with a crack ship? Yeah, do it. I need Julia to be shipped with more people than just uh, Magnus. Loop Julia. Yeah, that was... I mean, that's that's the go-to, obviously. Yeah. Because that's the the logical, like, oh, well, if you're going to put Magnus with Taco... That's one of the other things you could do. I'm about to write a fan fiction in like 10 words. Uh-huh. When Kravitz first comes to Julia's soul and tells her about like, hey, 
you're going to get a little bit more time with Magnus. Before he gets the chance to, like, pitch the situation to her, she fucking lays into him and he sees spades. And I think they have a short pitch fling right in that window. That's, that's pretty <laughs> funny. I like that. I, I'll buy that. That's pretty funny. Kravitz flip briefly <laughs> flipping pitch for anybody who attempts to fuck with him <laughs> yeah. when he's an assassin is good, actually. Yeah. Anybody who challenges his competence in a way that makes it that makes it appear as though they're better at, than him at something, he's like, oh, what? You're not allowed to do that. Yeah. Clark, that's hot. Yeah. Because then fucking Taco can give him shit about it. He can just make jokes about like, Oh, it's a cold bed tonight, babe. Like, <laughs> they've discussed it. It's fine, right? It's all yeah. consensual and everything. But Taco definitely ribs Kravitz about his pitch proclivities. Avi and Johan are dating. Oh, yeah. Avi and Johan are transcending quadrants. They are just... Kelly and Karen adopt Noel. Well, I mean, they can't adopt Noel, but, like, they would have adopted uh-huh. Noel. You yeah. know what I mean? Three-way flush pail. Yeah. Just mixing it up barry and magnus magnus is the first one to like believe barry by accident kind of but yeah he's the one who sells everybody else on barry Mm -hmm. actually i'm thinking about like on the ship because i very much have it like once julia's gone magnus does not do any relationships like he has really close friendships and he does like recover and live a full life but no romance none of it i think magnus Magnus is Barry's first pitch relationship. And Magnus is, Magnus is the, like, the summer romance. Like, he's the fiery, he's more than Barry can handle. But Barry's really really excited about it. It's like, oh my god, I fucking hate this dude. uh, The thing about Barry is that, like, there's no, there's nothing, there's nothing that convinces me that he and Luke would get along. Like, um, I... I know that really? like loops that loops very sunny and I mean I think that they would get along but like why would she date him? Cause she loves him. I've seen their like I have seen relationships that are that relationship in real life. I see it because I've seen it. I mean yeah I I have seen some of it too but at the same time I'm just like that like narratively I think loop loop is too barry's interesting but like he's got this very he's like there are a couple of different ways you could take barry he could either be a sad nerd or he could be be like an avenging like punisher type character depending on Mm -hmm. which aspects of his whole shit you lean into yeah and like neither of those are like what it's incredible that he's both it's it is incredible that he's both and also (laughs) a pianist he's like the main character of hitman somehow yeah um but he he's like balding and wears blue jeans yeah yeah (laughs) i see the the oh he's butler from artemis fowl i'm sorry can't wait till i fucking understand artemis fowl (laughs) um the bloop jeans dynamic is it's a pretty to me pretty simple inversion of the roles of a classic epic romance heterosexuality like in any other story barry would be a woman loop would be a man in terms of their dynamic where Loop is the... Loop is fucking Odysseus who goes off and leaves leaves her love pining back home. Barry is dedicated to this romance, but he is the... I don't know how to say it without doing like a ha-ha dom-sub joke. She is the proactive person in that relationship. Yeah. Like, the, like sure, Taco encourages Barry like, hey man, we don't... Like, we are literally immortal 
go for it. It's okay. But I don't think Barry is the one who pursues that relationship. He is the one pursued. Absolutely. And, like, that alone, probably just because I'm an easy lay for romance, but, like, that alone is enough to get me hooked. I'm like, okay, yeah, I dig that. This powerful bisexual trans woman is going for this dude. She fucking loves this guy. She's going to sweep him off his feet. Yeah, I get like they do get a decent amount of like they work. Oh, I think it's because a lot of their romance is kind of off off screen by virtue of Griffin playing both of these characters, mm-hmm. and it kind of sucked to have their development be on screen. Actually, um, they practice music together. They like do lich stuff off screen, and we see the culmination of that. For me, I just see like this guy who's like the guy who's like, oh, I really like this girl, and like I've been pining after her for so long, and I've never said anything, and she has no idea, mm-hmm. and like I'm making this out to be a bigger thing than it is, and. Like it, it, like I'm glad that it wasn't that he was creepy and Griffin was gonna be like, oh, he was creepy, and they never yeah. talked again at the end because that would have sucked. He's definitely the only one of them we see confirm beforehand that he has feelings, right? But at the yeah. same time, it's very much he goes to her brother and he's like, hey man, help me like go about this right if I'm gonna go about it at all. Most of their relationship we see up until their relationship gets solidified is them working together it's not necessarily this like big epic romance it's like these two people they work together and they get along and they grow to understand and love each other it gets really big and it becomes this big part of both of their identities but it came forth from these two adult people just getting to know each other really well and bonding can we give them diamonds for this if we're gonna give i mean i hearts lucretia i absolutely think they transcend yeah like they are just there for each other. I see that when Homestuck brings up relationships that transcend the quadrants, I read that as what we think of as human romance. Like, it is all of them. Because a lot of heterosexual romance in media involves lover spats, and sometimes someone else has to step in, and sex, and that emotional closeness. Like, it involves aspects that are character characteristic of all four quadrants in quote-unquote complete relationships in media do we have anything else for shipping that we want to do i'm gonna see if i can come up with one more crack ship before we go lucas and joaquin they never share screen time lucas hates that joaquin had instant power without training for it and joaquin is overwhelmed and overjoyed (laughs) that there's this dude who knows so much about fantasy shit it's flush pitch they are bakugo and deku but like (laughs) the person who's smart is who's like openly smart is reversed Yeah. Dumb Deku and smart Bakugo. <laughs> First of all, Deku is very strategically intelligent. And he's dumb as fuck, though. Yeah, no, and Bakugo is actually re- kind of smart. Like, he's yeah. pretty smart. Like, you know what I mean. Like, he, yeah. It's not his defining feature. Yeah, okay, all right, I, I like that. I don't want us to be under the impression that Deku isn't a dumbass. <laughs> Last section, Friska. Uh, I've showed my hand here. I, it's Taco. It's Taco all the way. I don't think it could be anybody but Taco yeah. is the thing. Like, we could say it was Loop, but the thing is, is that yeah. it's Taco. I you know, from TV. This, <laughs> this might be, get me in a little bit of hot water, but I think it would be a mistake for us to call Loop the Vriska, because that would be falling into the trap of the Vriska is a woman in media I like. That's oversimplification, and it doesn't do justice to the complexity of either of those women. Loop's not morally dubious or complex enough to no. be Vriska. Loop has very straightforward in her moral beliefs. Yeah, she's straight up a hero. Like, she's a good person who does good things for good reasons. Like, 
she's not contentious in that way. She she doesn't have a lot in common with Chris with the Krista with Vriska as a person. They're both really awesome, powerful, admirable women, and I love both of them. But they're not similar, and I think it would be a disservice to both of them to call Loop the Vriska. Meanwhile, Taco is like gleefully <laughs> like, "Oh, you're telling me the thing that I was worried about for years isn't actually my fault. So like, I don't, I don't have any moral obligation to like this anymore." <laughs> Now you can pay I, more attention to how great I am. Yeah, I don't need to feel bad about all those people dying. Like, Fuck as if yeah. as if guilt is the only thing you could ever feel at the death of another person. Like, he's just like, oh, well, I'm not responsible for it. So it's fine now. Yeah, like, I've, that's the low empathy mood. Like, I've been there. Yeah. But it's also like, that's so Vriska. <laughs> so Vriska. If you go back, if you offer her the chalice and the chalice is like, hey, Vriska, it turns out that every time your spider mom ate somebody it was like a synth version of you who went out and did it and then implanted the memories of doing it into your brain and you never actually killed anybody like that's how she'd react she'd be like oh i have no guilt all right time to become the scariest motherfucker in this whole world it, it is how she reacted in pester quest because as soon as uh as soon as they killed her spider mom she was like oh well like there's nothing wrong with me now. Like, everything's fine. There's no mm -hmm. moral ambiguity anymore. Everything is erased. Yeah. I haven't played Pester Quest, so I don't know how it's framed. But that's like... That's Taco, baby. That's Taco, baby. <laughs> that is very much the, like, I'm in this for me. I want to get rich, and I want to get rich because I'm awesome, and I do dope shit, and I want to be able to afford to do dope shit. Vriska's damaged... In a physically in some way, and the first thing she does is get something to fix that. Taco is, de is, is like, deprettified, and the first thing he does is like, oh, I'll undo that. Yeah. Some magic. Yeah. I will sacrifice a spell slot. Yeah. Like, I will uh, forever Consistently have... forever. Uh-huh. Because I need to be pretty, because that's part of the attention that I need, yep. that I need. I need it. It's... In fairness, I'd do the same thing. I mean, yeah, fair. <laughs> like, if I were ethereally pretty, and then suddenly I was just normal. Mundane pretty, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, like, there's no contention here. It's Taco. It's Taco. It's Taco. He, he saves the world by choosing to work communally with people and decides to celebrate by becoming the CEO of a corporation. Like, it's... <laughs> Leading to my Jane and Vriska parallels essay. Oh, yeah. I mean, life and light are next to each other for a reason. Fortune and wealth, they are part of both of those aspects, and that's why I go back and forth with, when I diagnose a light or life player, I waffle every time. I'm like, is this fortune? Is this associated with the narrative and with meaning and history, or is this power? But they both have involve money. They both involve wealth, literal fortune. It's, yeah, it's taco. It's taco. taco we set aside wealth. 20 minutes for this bit. It, we're fifth, we're five minutes in and we've got it. Like, it's, taco would wear red high top converse. Taco does <laughs> wear red high top converse, but they're, they're heels. They are the Special kind of made. Yeah. Fucking. With every outfit. And they lace up to the knees. They are like, unstop. They are ugly god he pulls them off people draw taco in all these nice well-coordinated outfits and he's just a <laughs> goblin yeah is the thing he like he makes fun of merle for wearing jodhpurs but like shut up man <laughs> you modeled what you wore after fucking jared leto uh -huh. justin yeah eat shit justin <laughs> It, it it was a bad cut justin you, you can choose other eccentric dudes to 
model your elf character after as opposed to fucking Jared Leto. It's Taco. You know, from TV. It's Taco from, like... It's Taco from TV. We could keep going, but it's... We got... It's... That's it. Yeah. We know who it is. Okay, so the last thing we want to talk about is just, like... I don't know. Taz is, like, a a body of work as a fandom, as how we like it, how we feel about it. As an independent genesis... Or as a... um, yeah, independent genesis of Homestuck again. Yeah, for it, Griffin McElroy hasn't read Homestuck, and for not having read Homestuck, there's a lot of Homestuck in here. Yeah, jumping from reality to reality. In the ship. To, yeah, to start over. Uh, like the Light of Creation fellow has Skya-esque stuff going mm-hmm. on with it. There's a, a main timeline that needs to be maintained. That's, I mean, that's pretty generic. There's other stuff that has that in it, but like... It's very Homestuck. Talk about your fandom experiences, because mine are, like, ongoing. Yeah. I'm still in it. Yeah, I'm not, really. I I was an archive reader and got caught up in March of 2017. So I got caught up right at the... I think the end of the Suffering Game. Mm-hmm. I think it was right before the Stolen Century started. I think that's probably where I got on, too. I'm not, I, it was either that or around the beginning of the Suffering Game. Okay, yeah. It was, it was the end of my junior year of college and because i listened to i got caught up with it while i was washing dishes at a salad making place Mm because i had something to do with my hands so i could listen to a podcast that's also when i that's also when i decided to listen to like the first 200 episodes of my bim bam because i did listen to the first 150 they're fine they're not good but i moderated a mcelroy facebook group a trans mcelroy facebook group for a while and then I stopped doing that because it turns out being on Facebook fandom sucks. It sucks yeah. a lot. Don't do it. Facebook is a bad website. It's a bad website. I have a ta- I got cosplayed Taco when I went to see the Adventure Zone live for the Seattle Halloween Spooktacular. Yeah. I saw just I saw Griffin McElroy do the Dracula <laughs> voice live, which was great. Uh, they have sign language interpreters at their events, which is cool. Uh, I met somebody in a Bacoblin mask. Nice. I project onto Lucretia. Anyway, Taz fandom, it's really honestly a pretty lovely fandom as far as I've interacted with it. Like, I mean, there's fandom drama and stuff, obviously, but like the creators are extremely open and receptive to criticism, especially criticism of like, there's uh, Hurley and Sloan where Griffin McElroy, like without realizing it stumbled on the barrier gaze trope without realizing he was doing it. And then people spoke up and they were like, hey, that sucks, man. Like, that hurt. We were getting gay romance and you buried your gaze. That sucks. And he was like, oh, fuck. I didn't know that. And so he just wrote into the plot that they come back. Yeah. He, uh, he unburied his gaze. Or there's a point where, like, in the first episode where Luke shows up, Griffin does a very affected voice. Mm-hmm. And then the episodes after that, he does it less so because a bunch of people were like, hey, uh, maybe don't make your trans woman sound like that. And he was mm-hmm. like, okay, maybe I won't. Do yeah. That. It's really good. A lot of gay romances are, like, centered and explicit. There's a lot of, like, variously non binary characters. Roswell fucking rocks. I love Roswell so fucking much. No human or human non-binary characters yeah we got a non-binary yeah. elemental i find that a little more forgivable in a fantasy setting where, where it's just like given mm-hmm. that you don't have to be a human to be sentient to yeah human and respected to be yeah. a person yeah what else it's it's really interesting and fun to see the way that this story or unfolds organically a lot has been said about the way the adventure zone tells a story mm-hmm. but it does it well as yeah. it turns out it it turned me on to TTRPGs, which is a train I am still on. 
Especially because of the way, if you listen back through it, knowing more about the rules of D&D and such, you're like, man, they, they just... Don't fucking play the game. Yeah, and like I think it, it lends a lot of respect to the idea that like the, the game is a framework to mm-hmm. have fun and not to follow the rules. Yeah. Reddit. Reddit. That's um, why, that's why, like, this. I remember how c- contentious the Stolen Century part yeah. of the part of the episodes were and how much people hated that they weren't playing 5e but like it was just a fun way to play a story it's part of the reason why i like uh friends at the table so much i think Mm -hmm. that's where griffin got the idea is because if you listen to if you if you play any game well not any game a lot of games other than D that are more story focused mm-hmm. they're they have a lot of fun mechanics for story and griffin did some thoughtful story things with yeah. the way he set up the stolen century and like i think the the adventure zone balance arc marked a split in terms of tabletop podcasts as a a niche thing where there's critical role and there's the lineage from that and there's the Adventure Zone and the lineage from that, where yeah. you can listen to it because you want to hear people play the game D&D. You want to hear initiative rolls. You want them rolling on a hex map, random encounters, that kind of thing. Someone recorded their normal home game, and that's one way to do it. But then there's the Adventure Zone style where you build something and you decide, okay, let's turn this into a central narrative, and let's start as a game to build things up, and then move towards the narrative and away from the mechanics of the game as we go to get to like a more emotionally affected, affecting ending. If you're not into that second thing, that's totally fine. But I don't think a lot of people understood that that's what was happening at the time. But nowadays there are other... I mean, a lot of them have been going since before the Adventure Zone, but they were popularized by it in terms of, like, people realize, like, oh... Yeah, this is a format. Yeah, this is a way of doing this that's separate from the critical role, geek and sundry style. Yeah, because I was going to say, Friends of the Table falls in the critical role sphere, but it's been going for at least as long as critical role. Mm-hmm. Stuff like the Magnus Archives, or, like... The Penumbra podcast? Yes, Penumbra, where, like, some of them are outright scripted, but some of them are, like, improvised. Uh, Welcome to the Magic Tavern. <laughs> uh, where, like... People use the format of improvisation and sometimes even gamed improvisation. I think all of the penumbra is scripted because it's scripted oh, and yeah. has it's scored and stuff. But the, but then there's the more improv mm-hmm. stuff. That, like yeah, there's a, there's also a split between mm-hmm. like because sc- it's not like the penumbra podcast can't be funny. Yeah. There are there's there's a lot of points where it is funny and but um it's the scripted versus the spontaneity. I have an hour long essay of the adventures on balance is genius and here's why just like floating around in my brain i'll write it someday yeah you stated i think at some point during our listen through that you considered taz balance to be like one of the greatest stories ever written oh yeah absolutely like it's fucking top yeah i think it's i think it's good i don't agree with you it's one of the greatest stories ever written but i think it's good that's fair i've read too many stories to think it's one of the greatest stories ever written but i think that for the way that it was for the way that it was written it turned out really fucking well for the way way it was written and presented at the time it was written and presented it turned Uh, out well it's definitely one of those cases where it just like hit me and it fused with my bones and like it's a part of me now but like it does something to me that other stories don't even other stories that I love as much as I love it, you know? There's something unique about it. They're, they captured fucking lightning in a bottle. 
I hope they can do it again. I haven't been keeping up with graduation. I haven't either. I haven't been listening to a lot of podcasts lately. That's yeah. part of the reason. Like, I dropped off. I was barely able to keep up with the you, end of Taz Balance. You know what, what makes it off. hard to listen to podcasts? The ADHD? Making a podcast. Making a podcast. <laughs> yeah. You spend a lot of your time editing. I don't... Anyway, this is... We're, we're about the end. Um, I think, like we said in, yeah. the, in the card at the top, we're going to bi-weekly postings, if in case yeah. that wasn't obvious when we skipped a week. Otherwise, thanks for coming to yeah. our Adventure Zone class backing. Next week, we're going to make a session. We're going to have some fun with it. Hopefully. Uh, I'm... I'm intrigued as to whether yeah. or not maybe maybe we'll make the trolls. Maybe we won't. We'll see. We'll we'll see how it goes. All right. Okay. Well, catch you catch you later. Smell you later. Smell you later. <laughs> hey, thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, follow us at Willit Homestuck on Twitter. If you want to support the show, check out our Patreon or Coffee, both of which are at Willit Homestuck. Next week we'll be at Stuck at Home Con, which you can find more about at sawcon.com or at Stuck at Home Con on Twitter. Join us again on August 1st for Kingdom Hearts with Minty and Mo. The numbering system is going to get all jacked up because there's a Taz Part 2, but I do not care. Bye! (laughs)